0: This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community.
1: Here's an exercise. Try going to Google, or whatever your favorite search engine may be on the internet, and enter Schumann Resonance. I'll spell Schumann for you. S-C-H-U-M-A-N-N. I tried this recently and ended up with a lot of links to what scientists derisively call New Age hokum, or just woo. You'll see these references to Schumann Resonance being the so-called heartbeat of our planet, with amazing abilities to cure disease and alter consciousness itself, if only we could tap into its incredible power. But is Schumann Resonance a real thing? Surprisingly, the answer is yes. It all begins with lightning. Flashes of lightning strike around the Earth about 50 times every second, believe it or not, and these discharges create electromagnetic waves at extremely low frequencies. The waves were named after Wiedfried Otto Schumann in honor of his work on global resonances that he was doing back in the mid-1950s. First measured, however, in the early 1960s, the signal itself is centered at 7.83 hertz, and it has progressively weaker harmonics, that pop up at fourteen point three, twenty point eight, twenty seven point three, and thirty three point eight hertz. The resonances fluctuate with variations in the ionosphere, with the intensity of solar radiation playing a major part. The world's lightning hotspots in Asia, Africa, and South America also influence the strength of the resonance. To detect and measure these waves, you need a specialized receiver. In quite a large antenna, as you can imagine, for that wavelength. Scientists have been measuring the Schumann resonance for several decades now because there are still some unanswered questions about how the signals form, I mean, why it's 7.83 Hz, for example, and how they propagate. There is also scientific interest in how Schumann resonances might, big might, affect biology. Life on Earth, after all, evolved in the presence of these signals, and some scientists wonder if they could have an effect. At this point, I need to raise a warning flag. There is serious research taking place in this area, but there's also a phenomenal amount of woo. On the serious side, well, a 2006 study found that the frequencies may be related to different kinds of brain waves. The researchers described, quote, real-time coherence between variations, in the Schumann resonance and brain activity spectra within the six to sixteen hertz band, unquote. authors of a 2016 paper from the Behavioral Neuroscience Laboratory of Canada's Laurentian University discovered that 238 measurements from 184 individuals over a three and a half year period quote, demonstrated unexpected similarities in the spectral patterns and strengths. Of the electromagnetic fields generated by the human brain and the Earth ionospheric cavity. Unquote. This all exists in the realm of real science, and research is continuing. But if you go looking for this topic yourself, just be sure to use a very strong woo filter. You'll stumble across all sorts of claims about Schumann resonance. Just remember the quote popularized by Carl Sagan. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. With our technical chops, hams are pretty well positioned to dabble in this research. If you're a member of the IEEE, you can access the article Design of Schumann Resonance Generator and Detector that was published back in the October 2017 proceedings of the International Symposium on Electromagnetic Compatibility. It's pretty interesting stuff. I'm speaking with Grant Connell, WD6CNF. I was about to say good afternoon, Grant, but I guess it's good morning, your time, right?
2: That's still
1: 11 o'clock here. Well, Grant is known among many in the amateur radio community for his work in software in particular. In fact, uh, he has a website at www.hotamateurprograms.com where he offers a number of his uh, free programs for Windows. And I'll put the link to that in our uh, Eclectic Tech podcast archives there for episode 37. I was just visiting there not long ago, in fact, Grant, and I I saw something that was unfamiliar to me, so I had to download it. It was called CWTY?
2: That's correct.
1: And it's, uh, I I haven't, I had much time to play with it, but it seems to be like a a, a remarkable little Morse decoder program.
2: It's um, an expansion of the CW decoder program that I uh, wrote uh, about ten, twelve years ago. But I wanted to give uh, the program better transmit capabilities, so I extended the um, uh, CW uh, uh, alphabet to be the keyboard, so you can have like an RTTY. Uh, conversation with people with parentheses and all the special punctuation marks everything else and there's a a, a Morse code sequence that corresponds to that character and that that operates even all the way up to uh, even though the characters are a little longer they're five to six characters long uh, tits and dots and uh, that will operate all the way up to 100 words a minute uh, without uh, losing a losing a character. So I wanted to have a, a little bit of an upgrade to Morse code.
1: Well, I've managed to uh, do some decoding with it uh, just briefly, and uh, it worked remarkably well. Uh, in fact, it, for lack of a better word, uh, it seemed to kind of learn or adapt as it was decoding signals. Is that a reasonably accurate way to put it?
2: That's right. You know, it it has to adjust to the code speed of the operator, so it it has to have a few dits and das to to get the spa, uh, timing correct. Because you know, so the higher in speed you go, the shorter the dits and dahs go. So it uh, it builds up a, a little memory to determine just how long those are, so that it can set the code speed, and then by setting the code speed, it sets the filter inside the program to optimize for that code speed.
1: Okay. Well, it was after I had looked at your website Grant that I jumped over and went to uh, qrz.com and was looking at your page and was amazed at all of the photographs of your <laughs> your antennas both indoor and out and the story behind it and all that and what is that story? You you live with rather serious antenna restrictions, correct?
2: Uh, I've lived within ten- tennis restrictions for quite a while. It actually started in 1992 when I moved from San Jose to uh, Livermore, California. And I moved into a nice new house, good neighborhood, but they had antenna restrictions. So then, I I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I wanted to keep in touch with my friends in the Bay Area, and uh, I needed some way to do that. So I started looking around and and uh, found a, that I had some attic space. And then I started uh, building some ante- small antennas, you know, to be able to uh, see if I could get in touch with my friends back down in San Jose. And it's about. 40, 45 miles away, and to my surprise, I was able to build small antennas that, that did the job. And uh, then I, of course, built some uh, uh, verticals and operated the repeaters in the area, and I was able to reach the antennas there, uh, the uh, stations with the uh, repeaters, with small verticals. So, uh I discovered that the roof tiles weren't that much of a problem even up to 2 meters.
1: I was wondering about that. Are those uh slate or uh, what sort of roof tiles are those?
2: Uh the ones uh well, the older homes have the 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 uh tiles that that are petroleum based type kind of tiles, uh, the regular tiles. And uh the new homes have a variety of different type of of uh ceramic type tiles and uh they're like pottery, and so they break, and, but uh, you can get them flat or round depending on the house style, uh, and uh, so the question was, you know, how, how bad is it for RF, and it turns out uh, they're actually uh, pretty easy because, uh, especially in the Phoenix area, uh, it's pretty dry, and so there's not a lot of moisture in there, so radio waves can go right through the tile.
1: Now, your attic looks a lot like mine with rafters going every which way, and In your photographs, it almost looks like you have these antennas
2: more or less sandwiched between the rafters. Is that right? Uh, That's correct. And that's actually a fairly recent development. Uh, I used to just stick the antennas uh, uh, where the rafters weren't. And uh, they usually have about four to six feet of space available. You could put a small antenna in there. But, um, I also discovered that, uh, along the center line of the roof of this house, it's a fairly large house, 3,600 square feet, single story, the, ver- the rafters went vertically. So I, I decided, uh, I wanted to be able to reach out a little farther. And so I put the antennas through the, through the rafters and doubled my antenna length from about four feet to eight feet. And, uh, th- but then I had to have one going mostly to the northern hemisphere and mostly to the southern hemisphere. So it took two antennas, but they're bigger. And I was able to rotate them maybe 100, 120 degrees and get coverage. And that worked fine for the Phoenix area. Uh, I I have mostly Phoenix is to the north, northwest of me and Tucson group are to the south of me. So that worked out just fine for that situation. It looks like I'm seeing a
1: 1296 loop Yagi in there too.
2: Yes, that's a commercial Yagi from one of the vendors. And uh, uh, I decided not to tackle uh, the tight dimensions required for operation at that frequency. (laughs) And
1: how how far
2: is that attic above the ground, would you say? I, I would say the average antenna height that you can put in there is about 17 feet. Uh, having such a large house with uh, with the tiles required uh, a little higher apex. So the apex of the house is about 20 feet, and my attic ba- uh, height is about 15 to 17 feet.
1: Now, of course, the big question, Grant, this being UHF and VHF
2: inside an attic, how well do they work? So HF not so well. Uh, I did put a, uh, a 40, 15, and 10 meter multi strand dipole up there and uh although I was able to receive stations uh one of the disadvantages of being up uh, up there in the attic is that you're you're coexisting with house wiring and it turns out nowadays with all the hash and devices uh, the house wiring provides you a wonderful S9 signal so, uh, even though I, I could hear stations, uh, the big gun stations, uh, across the country, uh, the small, uh, the weaker stations weren't feasible. And also, uh, those attic members will detune your antennas so they don't operate very well. You know, it's hard to get the, uh, SWR down low enough to, uh, you can do it with antenna tuning, but you've got a detune structure. Now on VHF and UHF, surprisingly, you know, six meters is I can talk all the way across country. I've talked to the East Coast with a two element hex beam. And on two meters, I can talk directly down to Tucson. Uh, I've talked over to Lake Havasu from my location. It's about 250, 300 miles. And I've talked up to Flagstaff, which is about 150 miles. So in two meters, I can even go 150 miles. But I also operate like some 1296 and a 440 for the local uh, uh, repeaters or the local, uh, Uh, ham groups.
1: Now, among your collection of photos, and they're very nice photos too, by the way, again, I encourage listeners to go look at your profile on qrz.com, but I see a number of really intriguing outdoor antennas, loops, and uh, I think a cobweb, maybe, maybe a six meter quad as well.
2: Uh, That's correct. You know, I like to operate the full spectrum, you know, HF and Uh, VHF and UHF. And VHF and UHF, you get to rag-chew, talk to people on antennas, and there's lots of people building EME stations, a couple of them around me. And so you get to talk about antennas, transmitters, uh, homebrew equipment, and the general good old ham stuff. But uh, for outside DX, I had a real problem in that I couldn't put a dipole up. And so I didn't know what to do. And so I started a journey of thank god for the web uh, there were a lot of uh, web articles on different types of antennas and one of them happened to be the the loop or, or the small transforming loop the stl type of antenna and i started uh experimenting with small versions of that and build up to larger versions and uh read some more work on what made them work, what didn't make them work. And I discovered that by uh, having bigger copper tubes and paralleling the tubes that you could uh, improve the efficiency of those antennas to pretty much operate like dipoles. So then I put them on rotors. And so now I basically have uh, antennas that act like dipoles that I can rotate. And and I've now got up to 78 countries for my DXCC.
1: Wow. And does that pose a problem in terms of your homeowner restrictions, those being
2: out there? No, because uh, I have a six-foot fence, and those things are about six-foot high. (laughs) Okay. I do push it a little bit with the cobweb. Uh, The uh, neighbor behind me has a uh, trampoline set with these uh, webbing and these arms that go up. And guess what they look like? (laughs) <laughs> it looked like the cobweb. So I figured, you know, he's not going to uh, say too much about my cobweb, and I won't say too much about his trampoline.
1: Well, they're they're beautifully put together, the antennas. Um, they all appear to be uh, using black material or spray-painted black. Was that a deliberate choice?
2: So uh, I use copper tubing. The kind you can get for uh, refrigeration systems for your air conditioning, and I spray paint them black. My, now, my my wife actually wanted me to have them uh, copper colored. They're very shiny copper, and she wanted me to to uh, shellac them and have them be bright uh, uh, bright copper. And let me tell you, they are really bright. And I just did not want to bring all that attention to me. <laughs>
1: No, that makes perfect sense. And they're on rotators as well, did you say? That's correct.
2: Uh, All those antennas are on rotors, even the cobweb, because the cobweb does have, uh, which, you know, a cobweb is really a dipole, and it's a multi-strand arrangement. And uh, they have about two, three dB more gain in one direction in the front than they do in back, uh, along with, uh, you know, good side. Uh, side uh, lobe—they uh, don't reduce the side lobes as much as a dipole does. So, in, most people don't rotate the cobwebs, but I—I I want that extra two or three dB of gain.
1: Sure. And do you remote tune the loops, or are they fixed
2: more or less? Oh, well, the tunes—the ha- loops have to be tuned. So I—I I, I run a, uh, uh, a multi-conductor cable for the rotor. And there are a couple of extra lines in the rotor cable that can be used for driving a motor, which drives the tuning capacitor. So they're tuned uh, to the frequency of operation remotely.
1: I could have looked at the captions on your photo for this, but I might as well ask you now. And that was, how many outdoor antennas do you have now, and, and for which bands?
2: Well, I have actually, uh, I think, uh, five outdoor antennas uh i have an hf uh receive loop from mfj that provides me general coverage from you know broadcast band up to 30 megahertz and although i had built my own uh, i like their preamplifier better than mine (laughs) but it did work um building wideband preamp is is a a good a good exercise (laughs) and then i have uh two uh major loops that uh are large for efficiency. One of them covers 40 and 80 meters. Uh, the other loop covers uh, 20 meters, 15 meters, and uh, 17 meters. And then the cobweb has a little bit of an overlap. It covers uh, 20 meters, 15 meters, and 12 meters. And then uh, six meters is just too big for the attic. So I have a, a six meter, three element uh, quad.
1: Well, you're a testimony to what can be done under difficult situations. I mean, granted, you have the outdoor space with the privacy fence, but you've done uh, astonishing work in your attic as well.
2: The attic antenna was uh, actually a progressive kind of development. When I first moved to the Phoenix area, I had no idea uh what the activity was for the amateur community and it turns out this is the area where a lot of hams come to retire and so there is a a good amount of of amateur activity on six meters on uh, uh, 223.5 on on uh, two meters on uh, uh, 440 and 1296 so as I discovered these different groups I, I upgraded my ham shack to the uh, ICOM 9700 that gave me 440 and 1296 and then I started building antennas to be able to be part of all these groups who were operating there and we have a uh, a lot of activities there. Uh, I don't get on too much of the 1010 nets but uh, I do get on on all the other VHF and UHF nets.
1: In addition to all of your antenna work do you think you'll be authoring more software
2: for hams? The, the only software addition I, I w- would have would be modification to the CWTY program. Um, you know, I, I'm impressed with operating uh, WSJT uh, on FTA, and um, I think I would like to make it uh, a little more uh, uh, versatile in in uh its interface just like wsjt make it easier to operate like push a button to log for lotw and things like that so i will extend that program for the convenience of logging and you know that way you don't have to have a extra log program to log your contacts um so uh i will expand on that well that would make sense well I, i encourage everyone to uh be able to uh uh Get out and operate. As you know, we're all many hams now. Are uh, have the antenna restrictions, and, and it severely limited our ability to to uh, operate on the bands. And I I, I kind of wanted to show that you you can uh, buy antennas or build antennas, especially uh, you. Uh, I, I operate high power, so I had to build my antenna. You c- couldn't buy high power antennas in general for for the HF bands and the mag loops. So there are a few, but uh, you you can do that, and I and you, you can reach out to the world because uh, I've, I've now in, I've operated FT8 less than two years. And I've got WAS on 40 and 20 meters with small magnetic loops and only five feet in diameter. And and everybody can get on the air and uh, do that. Uh, It's not a really difficult job. And you can practice your hobby and still be able to to reach out. I've been a DX fan for since I've started way back in 1962. Uh, Like I said, I was devastated when I got here and couldn't do anything. So I encourage all amateurs to be able uh, to, to do their hobby. And and to, attic is a good resource for for antennas. I mean, if you only have a handheld with a handheld antenna, uh, you can put something up in the attic, a small four-element uh, beam, and you can then uh, talk your peers and people uh, uh, that are part of the community around you, and you can still operate uh, uh, and and uh, exercise your
1: hobby. A lot of listeners are going to find this not only useful, but encouraging.
2: Well, I hope that, hope that they uh, get inspired. Uh, I have inspired several other people here to, in the area to put up antennas uh, in, in their attics, and they're now a part of the group. <laughs> well, hopefully I'll work you via your attic system one of these days. Oh, well, that, that's a little tougher. I hop out my outside antennas?
0: There you go.
2: <laughs> Thank you, Grant. Nice chatting with you.
0: Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL, and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.